So when you think about the Bible, you probably think about different things. People get excited about the, uh, the stories in the Bible, a lot of those exciting Old Testament stories, the ministry of the life of Christ, the miracles that he did, the, the birth of the early church and all of the things that took place. Or maybe, maybe you love the, the great Bible doctrines and you love to read about them in the scripture and study them. One thing that most of us probably don't, if we're honest, get really excited about are, are some of the practical admonitions in the Word of God. What I call practical Christianity, as we looked at Romans last week, and we uh, will continue that today with this message on practical Christianity part two. Of course, I could include so many other things in this. The, The New Testament is full of what we would call practical commands, the do's and the don'ts. But what what is a real Christian to look like? Because there's so many people we encounter. They call themselves Christians. And and I'm not going to go around and doubting people's salvation. But do they really live out their Christianity in a way that evidences that they have been indeed changed by the power of God? And they're, they're attempting by all that is within them and the grace of God that is given to them to, to live for Christ in this world. So we've seen so far in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 10, that practical Christianity, you can call it real Christianity if you want, is characterized by heartfelt brotherly love and fervent zeal for service. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, verse 10, in honor, preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. It's also characterized, verse 12, by a persevering faith, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. And then practical Christianity gives to those who are in need. It's a working faith. Verse 13, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality, which we defined last week as love of strangers. And one thing I failed to mention last week is that hospitality, the love of strangers, is a requirement for an elder in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But it's also a requirement for widows to receive church support in 1 Timothy 5. They have entertained strangers. They have opened up their their heart to strangers. Now we want to continue today with uh, practical Christianity and how it treats its enemies. Well, this is... uh, Quite shocking, actually, the things that we're going to read here. Because it's so counter to to our corrupted human nature. But practical Christianity treats its enemies different than the world does. The world operates by the, the motto of payback, right? Get even. Settle the score if you can. Christianity does not do that. Verse 14 says, Bless them who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now I want you to know that this is a personal command. This is not a national command that applies to Christians who are at war in service to their country. Something like that. This concerns someone who has hurt you in some manner. 
How are you to react to that? What does the word persecute mean? It means to pursue with earnestness and diligence. It means they have something against you and they're pursuing that. Someone was or is after you to cause you harm. Saul, we know, hunted down David and tried to kill him on a number of occasions. Saul of Tarsus persecuted, pursued the church, Christians, zealously. So I want you to think about these things this morning. Perhaps the injury done to you was was of a serious nature. Maybe you experienced some type of persecution from somebody. Perhaps it was an injury to your reputation. Or some damage was done to the people that you loved very dearly. People have a myriad ways of hurting other people and getting even. And it really hurts when it comes from someone who may be near you. Maybe, maybe a family member who is not saved. I thought of Jesus who said, you know, one day your enemies will become what? Those of your own household. So they're persecuting you. But the scripture says that we are in response to bless them. Now, how much more would this apply to a believer who has something against you? If what I'm saying from the scripture here is about an enemy, how much more does this apply to a member of the household of faith who's hurt you? But we're going to deal with the enemies now. Bless them. This is a compound word composed of you and logao, which means to speak well of. We get our word eulogy from it. Now, this does not mean you go around praising them. The pronouncement of blessing here is set in contrast to cursing. Cursing is calling down harm on someone else. So this leads me to think that blessing your enemies, get this, Blessing those who persecute you is asking God to do something good in their life. If they are lost, it would be what? Praying for their salvation. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's retaliation. That's getting even. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to take your your tunic, give him your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said you will love your enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So you can see where Paul is getting some of his thoughts here. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. So that you might be like him. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rains on the unjust and the just. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect. See, this is the goal. This is why we do these things. So that we could be perfect or mature or look like Christ, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is an attitude and an action totally different than the worldly wisdom. Which again, as I said, tells people to get even with people who hurt them. Badmouth them. Every chance you get. Tell others about the harm, the hurt that they have caused you. It, it caused you every chance you get. Now, look at verse 15. Besides blessing and speaking well of them and asking God to bless them, look what it says. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Now, we tend to apply this within the family of God. Somebody's hurting, I'm, I'm, I'm hurting with them. Somebody's rejoicing, they have a baby, I'm, I'm rejoicing with them. And that's true. But, but I want to suggest to you that this command is not to be divorced from the preceding verse. It actually takes the preceding verse to ask God to bless your enemies one step further. Rather than rejoicing that your enemy has suffered loss or experienced some other bad calamity because, quote, unquote, they had it coming, the Christ-following Christian is glad. He rejoices if he hears something good has happened in their life. This is your enemy. And, he, and he's sad if he hears that something bad has happened to them. He's actually weeping or mourning with them. Why? Why? Because in their heart, they are praying and hoping that God will use the good and the sad things in their enemy's life to bring about a change in their way of thinking concerning God and perhaps the way that they have treated others as well. Now, I, I want to tell you, this is not humanly possible. It's not humanly possible to think like that. It requires the divine work of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts that begins with where we began in this chapter, renewing your mind to think like Christ. Remember, remember that Jesus loved and came to die for his enemies, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't come to die for his friends. He came to die for his enemies, which we all were. Luke 6.27 says, I say unto you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to them who hate you. Bless them who curse you. And pray for them who despitefully use you, which means accuse you falsely, threaten you, slander you. We can't do this on our own. Absolutely impossible. Let me read you a little portion of Scripture for the sake of time. From Luke 9, verse 51. 
It came to pass from the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly, this is speaking of Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and they entered into the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, the treatment that he was getting in this village of the Samaritans, they said, Lord, will Wilt thou, we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Just give us the word. We'll do this. Now, I have to tell you, in my flesh, I do not want to pray for a blessing to someone who has hurt me. There is everything within me that resists that. I don't pray for the goodness of God to bless them in a way leading to repentance. In my own heart of heart, apart from the work of grace, God's grace in my life, I'm like the sons of thunder, James and John. Now you do not get that nickname because you are a gentle, nice, and quick, forgiving kind of a guy. Sons of thunder. There's a little bit of the sons of thunder in all of us, isn't there? But if you paid attention to that reading, Jesus rebuked and rejected the spirit of a militant Christianity that seeks revenge. Jesus rebuked and rejected the spirit of a militant Christianity that seeks revenge. Ephesians 6 says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers. Verse 12, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And 2 Corinthians 10.3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, which we do, we do not war after the flesh. That's carnality. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity. This is our struggle, the renewing of the mind. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Bless my enemies, Lord. Help me to do that. Rejoice when something good has happened to an enemy of mine. Help me to do that, Lord. Sorrow with them when they suffer loss. Help me to do that, Lord. Now, I can think of three important spiritual weapons because it says our weapons are not carnal, but they're spiritual. They're mighty through God. There's three very important spiritual weapons that every Christian has at their disposal. Love, showing biblical love. Truth, following the truth of God's word. And faith, trusting God at all times. Now, hear me. Christians should espouse biblical values. And we should stand up for them against the onslaught of the evil of our day. But we must do it in a way that is truly Christ-like in spirit. Keeping in mind what Jesus said in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, then, then my servants would fight. We would see a militant Christianity that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. It's not of this world. Now that verse alone contradicts dominion theology, if you're familiar with that. It's also known as reconstructionism. Christian reconstructionism. Fighting in every way that we can in the political realm and everything to reconstruct society according to Christian values and so forth. Now look, God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth one day, right? That's the ultimate reconstruction. We, can, we, can, we can't possibly make something new and beautiful out of this fallen world. We cannot reconstruct it. We are the salt and the light in this world. Christians are to provide the moral conscience in a day of evil. We must do that. But we also must remember that we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, not a political party. Politicians run attack ads against their opponents. They try to demonize them. They lie about them. We pray for our enemies. We ask God to bless them with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Listen, last week I said that the church turned the world upside down, which literally means they turned it right side up. They did it by two things. How do you turn the world upside down like that? They did it by two things. Number one, the power of the gospel. They went everywhere preaching the word. And secondly, the powerful witness of their lives. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. That's the unsaved. That's the enemies. That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may buy your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The power of the gospel and the powerful witness of our lives as believers. Listen, when Christians love their enemies... It becomes a powerful tool used by the Spirit of God in converting the lost. It's a tremendous witness. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, I think God has set us forth as apostles, last, as it were, appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. At least they thought they were. You are honorable, but we are despised. Even at this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and we have no certain dwelling place. That's a bad state to be in. We labor, he says, working with our own hands. But then he says this, being reviled, we bless. We bless. Being persecuted, we endure it for Jesus' sake. Being defamed, we entreat. We don't come to a ready defense. 
We are made as the filth of the world and the offscoring of all things unto this day. You know, Jewish and Roman law both focused on an eye for an eye. Christians operate under the royal law of Christ. They turn the other cheek, they go the extra mile, they give the cloak as well as the coat. It's radical, isn't it? This whole thing is radical. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays another with evil for evil. But always seek after that which is good for one another. That would be among us as believers. And for all men. All men. You have a picture up here. Could you put this picture up? Maybe you recognize it. Nice family, right? That's missionary Graham Staines with his two boys. Ten-year-old Philip, leave it on, and seven-year-old Timothy. Beautiful little children. If you know the story, in early 1999, while serving in India, working with lepers, this man gave his life to work in a leper colony. A radical Hindu mob set fire to their station wagon while they were sleeping, and all three were burnt to death. How would you feel as the surviving wife? They had a daughter, 13 years old, named Esther. She says, I count, I am just rejoicing that God counted it worthy that my father should die for Jesus. You know what his wife said? Graham's wife? The Lord has called each one of his workers to serve him wholly and live a life that would be a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. Be faithful to whatever you are called to do. Never yield to the temptation to go back. Never say quit, even if there is a persecution or threat. Keeping the look, keep looking to Jesus who has gone on before. I have only one message for the people of India. I am not bitter. Neither am I angry. I can forgive their killer's deeds, but only Jesus can forgive their sins. But they will have to ask. I have one great desire, that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who gave his life for their sins. Every Indian should know that Jesus loves him or her, and in turn they should trust him and endeavor to love one another. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. That's real Christianity. Continuing on, verse 16, practical Christianity is humility on display. Be of the same mind one toward another. I think what Paul is saying here is seek the common good. Seek the common good. He doesn't imply that we must see, you know, think alike on every non-essential issue. He is, he is not speaking of uniformity as much as he is speaking of harmony. Harmony in our relationships. The same mindset concerning the things revealed in scriptures, which we should all hold dear. The same goals in reaching the lost. The same expressions of love. 
The same agreement in keeping the main things the main things and not getting sidetracked by secondary issues. And when he says, be of the same mind one toward another, that's a reciprocal pronoun which denotes that the encouragement and edification goes two ways. It's iron sharpening iron within the body of Christ. And then he says, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Do not be wise in your own conceits. That's similar to what he said in verse 3 of chapter 12. For I... For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't elevate yourself, is what Paul is saying here, mind not high things. Don't elevate yourself. But take a real interest in people of low estate. Now, it could be things of low estate. I think it's people of low estate in context. I I tend to personally think that this refers to people who are being put down by life. They're having a hard time in life. They're going through very difficult circumstances. And you and I do not know the circumstances that led to, to people being in the places that they're in and these people don't have much to offer anyone because they're people in need you know proverbs 19 4 says wealth makes many friends right if you've got something to give to people you should not have a hard time making acquaintances probably not friends true friends but the poor is separated from his neighbor That's a man of low estate. He doesn't have a whole lot of friends. James 2.1, My brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes and a poor man in dirty clothes comes in and you pay attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and you say, sit here in in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Pay attention. Give yourself to men. Condescend to men of low low estate. Listen. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a club with levels of different membership. We are all one in Christ. Male and female, rich and poor, bond or free. It's not a club. We should treat everybody alike. There is no place for showing favoritism. There is no place for discrimination within the body of Jesus Christ. No matter what your background is, no matter what your skin color is, Don't be wise in your own eyes means don't be conceited. Don't be conceited. Isaiah 5.21 Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. See, this is not just New Testament truth. And prudent in their own sight. Proverbs 26.12 See a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool 
than of him. Now, let me, I didn't put these down in your notes. Let me, let me just mention, I think I have 11 here, signs that you might be wise in your own eyes. All right? Don't get mad at me. Please. Number one, you rarely ask advice from others. Why should you? You know it all. Or you think you know it all. You rarely ask advice from others. Number two, you have a hard time admitting you are wrong. You really struggle with that. Number three, you're quick to make excuses or justify your failures. Number four, you get angry when challenged. Number five, you presume to know what others are thinking. Number six, you think your way is always the best way. Number seven, you frequently judge the motives of other people. Number eight, you are frequently critical of how other people do things. Number nine, you often attempt to control others. Number 10, you find it difficult to ask for forgiveness from others. And number 11, you know you have no clue how others actually see you. Now, don't take this the wrong way. I said, don't get mad at me. We all fail in some of those things, right? You all marked one at least, right? Or two. We can all show a prideful spirit at times, think we're right and the other guy's wrong. The problem is when these things become part of our established character and people see it, but we don't. That's the problem. You know, A.W. A. Tozer, he wrote about humility. A humble man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of inferiority. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is weak and helpless as God declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time he is in the sight of God of more importance than the angels, in himself nothing, in God everything. That's it. That's humility. Knowing that in yourself you are nothing, but in God you are everything. Practical Christianity does not exasperate a damaged relationship. Verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. All right, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lies within you, in other words, you're going to strive as much as you can, as much as it's possible to live peaceably, with all men. Sometimes the only way you can live peaceably with another person is stay away from them because they want nothing to do with making peace. So if the goal in a damaged relationship when someone has become an adversary is reconciliation, then the Christian is to take the lead in seeking reconciliation. They must refrain from retaliation. That's the first thing you do. Don't strike back. 1 Peter 2.23 says, who, speaking of Jesus, when he was reviled, reviled not again. He didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself to the one who judges righteously. 
He just, he just trusted God. Jesus said, what well, turned it the other cheek, right? You know, what the, you know what it says in the Satanic Bible? If someone smites you on one cheek, smash him on the other. That's the spirit of the world. Refrain from retaliation. Second, seek to do honest or good things. Why? Hopefully to gain their respect. Change their attitude. Make every effort to live and promote peace. But it's not always possible. So Paul adds that if, if, it, if it's all possible. And then practical Christianity, one step further, does not seek revenge, verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now again, let me remind you, this has to do with personal experiences, offenses that that we have endured. How are we to respond to those things on a personal level? Number one, don't seek revenge, which is the natural reaction of the flesh, meaning the sin nature. That's the first thing that's going to come to your mind. Secondly, he says, leave room for wrath. That's not your wrath. What Paul is getting at here is, I think, uh, leave it to the wrath of others to the jurisdiction of others. Maybe the courts, judicially, the civil magistrates, they, they, they have the power to execute wrath. But ultimately, he's thinking, leave things up to God's ultimate justice, his wrath. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then it goes even further. Overcome evil with good, verse 20 and 21. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil or by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's like a soft answer turns away wrath, right? Not all the time, but often it does. So this is an interesting phrase. For in so doing, these things, you're going to heap coals of fire on his head. There's two views, main views, on what that means, coals of fire, that idiom. Number one, it symbolizes a burning sense of shame that leads to a change of heart. Somebody has done something bad to you, but you're returning that evil with good. You're putting coals of fire, proverbially speaking, on his head. Like, the, like, like a burning sense of shame for what he's done. I, I told you the story, and I don't mean to you know, keep saying this, but the best example I had was when a guy fired me from a job. <laughs> and it really wasn't my fault. You know, it was, he just was in a bad mood and... I, I drove a truck in that day and got a flat tire, and he got all upset. And he said, that's the second time you got a flat tire, and, and you know, I can't have that. And, you know, I mean, that's really what it was. So he fired me. So, okay. 
in my car, I had a big tray of Christmas cookies and stuff. Home-baked goods that Marie made. She made them to take to him. I didn't want to take him. He just fired me. I wanted to put him over his head. But I thought about it honestly, and I prayed about it, and I went in, and I, I gave it to him. And I was heaping coals of fire on his head. And you know what he said to me? You make it hard for a guy to fire you. And he says, I don't want you to leave. The other view is, it's coals of fire is a figure of God's judgment. Because fire oftentimes in the Bible is, of course, tied to judgment. A figure of God's judgment that will come on the enemy if he persists in his antagonism. In other words, you just leave it to God. You just go about doing good and God will settle the score, not you. There's a, there's a verse in Samuel. You know Saul was a persecutor of David. On two occasions, David could have taken his life, but he didn't. On the second, David went into his camp and he took Saul's bottle, I think it was a jug of water, and his spear that was right by him. And then he left. And you say, well, how could he do that? How could he walk into the middle of a camp? Because the Bible says God had put them into a deep sleep. <laughs> God had given them a deep sleep. So he took these things, and then from a hill at a distance, he showed what he could have done, but he wouldn't touch God's anointed. He wouldn't do it when he had the opportunity. And in 1 Samuel twenty six twenty one, then said Saul, I have sinned. This is this the remorse, the shame. Return, my son David, for I will do no more harm to you because my soul was precious in your eyes this day. That's returning good for evil, trusting God. Saul was God's anointed. David wasn't going to interfere with that. Behold, I have played the fool and you have erred and have erred exceedingly. But we can really change people's minds by how we act, Right? Especially when they don't expect it. When they don't expect it. You know, and that, that verse that we read in Romans comes from Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. If he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou will heap coals of fire on his head. That's what Paul's quoting from. But in Proverbs 25, 21, it adds these rewards. And the Lord will reward you. Return good for evil, and the Lord will reward you. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the noble path of the Christian. This is the hard attitude of people who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is radical. Christianity. I don't think like that. We don't think like that. What if you were, what if you were on a football team and you, and you deserved to win the, the starting role of wide receiver on your team? You outplayed everybody. 
You just gave yourself completely to, you know, winning this job. And you were better. But the coach started somebody else in your place. And you, you knew, wow, this is wrong. So what do you do? You root for his success? His personal success? What if he scores a touchdown that day? Will you be rejoicing? Or would you be saying, oh, I wish he would have dropped it. Right? You can think of a million such scenarios. The person at work gets to promotion and you didn't. How do we respond? Can we truly, truly bless them? Do good to them? Only if we're operating with the mind of Christ. That is the only way.